Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the future of biotech. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm today's host, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, the co-host of Biotech 2050. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a technology platform where we're organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise in order to accelerate the development of new therapies. I'm excited to welcome Carl DeChico to the podcast. He is currently the chief scientific officer at Foghorn Therapeutics and a partner at Flagship Pioneering. He was previously the head of research at Bristol-Myers Squibb. Carl, it's great to have you on the platform. We'd love to just jump in and learn a bit about your background, if you could just run us through how you got to where you are today. Sure. Uh, Thanks for having me here. Very happy to be here. Well, I'm a science junkie, and what I would say is that my background is really interest in science since I was young. I was educated in Canada uh, at uh, Guelph Waterloo Center and ended up um, going to graduate school there as well. Ended up in E.J. Corey's lab at Harvard doing my postdoc. I was there at a very opportune time. He won the Nobel Prize, and it was a, <laughs> it was a time when uh, I think everyone in the lab felt like they had to go out and do something outstanding. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very uh, thankful to have had the opportunity to do all that. My industrial life started at DuPont Merck, which was a joint venture that really did teach me a lot, and then was acquired eventually by Bristol-Myers Squibb, and I, I joined that company all in toll, so close to 30 years in pharma, the last five years spent as head of research. So great opportunities, got to be a part of great discoveries, and a lot of important drugs that proceeded over the finish line. And what are you working on now at Foghorn? Currently, I'm chief scientific officer at Foghorn. It's a very exciting young company, almost four years old now. And I have a lot of really interesting, good things to say about it. It's really the first company to build a drug discovery platform that is developing an unprecedented class of medicines. It's focused in an area of biology called the chromatin regulatory system. And at this point, we're a preclinical stage company, but we are rapidly advancing. We have 10 plus programs that are moving forward, focused initially on a wide range of cancers. And the real excitement here is that it's a new area, and it's a new area that offers great opportunity. The chromatin regulatory system is an important regulator of gene expression, and it's implicated, as I said, in a wide range of diseases. In cancer alone, the uh, promise of creating therapies based on this biology is very significant. And it could potentially be called the fourth wave of treatments in oncology behind chemotherapy, targeted therapies, and immuno-oncology. And we feel very strongly that this will in fact be the case. So you might be wondering, what is the chromatin regulatory system? Well, let me begin with a brief overview of chromatin and chromatin biology. So we're sort of back to basics here. Our DNA, of course, is very important and is compacted over a million fold to fit into the nucleus of each of our cells. Now, this compressed form of DNA is called chromatin. Tightly packed chromatin, think of it as the storage form, is inaccessible to gene expression. 
and a biological system is needed to unpack chromatin and to make our DNA and essentially our genes accessible for transcription. And this is done through the chromatin regulatory system. Now, it's comprised of three components, chromatin remodeling machines, and I'm talking about biological machines. These are multi-protein complexes that interact with chromatin. Transcription factors, of course, which are involved, and converging pathways. And essentially, it orchestrates the movement of molecules that turns genes on and off by enabling the unpacking of chromatin and allowing gene expression to occur. Now, it's all very interesting. But what does it have to do with drug discovery? Well, chromatin dysregulation is where the opportunity lies. And what we see is when this system goes awry, through mutations, for example, it's implicated across a wide range of diseases. And these diseases, historically, have not been accessible for study, understanding, or in drugging. Based on some truly groundbreaking discoveries by our founders on the role that dysregulation in chromatin remodeling machines plays in disease, we are now advancing, as I said, an unprecedented class of medicines targeting diseases with genetically determined dependencies in the chromatin regulatory system. So I think you have a picture of it. We decided to call it gene traffic control, and this has the analogy to the way that airplanes are trafficked, and of course, the regulatory piece for that is very important. When it goes awry, bad things happen. The company has developed a drug discovery engine that we call the Gene Traffic Control Product Platform, and that's there to translate our proprietary insights in the chromatin regulatory system into highly scalable drug discovery and development activities. And that really is where we are right now. As a company, we're very excited about the opportunities in front of us, and we are taking advantage of the science that is uh, the foundation for the, for the organization and are looking forward to having our molecules enter the clinic. Quick question on that. It sounds like you guys have focused in on oncology as the initial therapeutic area. Yes. But chromatin, in terms of its role in the in Human biology pervades any type of cell and likely multitude of different disease areas. How do you guys focus in on just that one? Well, it's a very good question. And I was going to get to this a little bit later, but we can certainly pick it up now. And that is that it's not just oncology. What we do know is that chromatin dysregulation is evident in a number of different areas. Um, for example, neurological disorders, it's uh, quite significant. In fact, one of our founders, Jerry Crabtree from Stanford University, focused much of his career in that area. And it was only after Segal Kadosh, the other founder, now at Dana-Farber, and a real pioneer in this field, made the observation that one of these BAF machines by itself was actually very highly mutated. And if you connect this, you are basically looking at about 25% of human cancers having a mutation in this system that essentially was not able to be drugged. And so that's where the focus has come. Really, the building of the platform was the critical piece. And we're talking about an investment of almost three years in building the platform. Why is that important? Well, essentially, what we're able to do is to study the chromatin system in context. In other words, we are getting our drug discovery programs off the ground by being able to understand exactly how these drugs would 
work in vivo. And so that part of the build for this company has been very important and remains something that continues to evolve over time. And I think that's a nice segue into what brought you to, to Foghorn. What, yes. was the, what, was, what was the driving force that uh, led you to leave uh, BMS and, and join the team there? Well, I worked at BMS for close to 30 years. And in the last five, as I said, as head of research, and there's no other way to describe it but as a incredibly rewarding time with the opportunity to be part of some really groundbreaking discoveries and new medicines. And BMS, truly a great company. There's no question about that. However, the idea of working at an early stage biotech has always appealed to me. The catalyst was about five years ago at the ASCO annual meeting. And as luck would have it, I had the opportunity to sit in on Foghorn's co-founder, Sigal Kadosh, who I just mentioned, where she shared her findings on the high incidence of mutations in one of the chromatin remodeling machines, the BAF machine. And her discovery of the role of chromatin dysregulation in 100% of cases of a rare form of cancer called synovial sarcoma was really quite interesting. And the presentation was just fantastic. And I remember walking away thinking that the concepts that she described if they could be advanced, would be incredibly important as breakthroughs for an entire field, and in this particular case, in cancer, and research and beyond. So about a year ago, the opportunity to join Foghorn and be part of what this is, revolutionary science, came my way, and I accepted the role, and I believe it's one of the best decisions that I've ever made. (laughs) So fast forward to today and the platform that we've created and industrialized based on these initial discoveries is on the cusp of entering the clinic, an area that I am very familiar with. And I would quote one of my friends, Dr. Lori Glimsher at Dana-Farber, when I was thinking about moving to this job, she had the comment that it's good to reinvent yourself every now and then. And absolutely true. And it's words of wisdom. In terms of the shift from pharma to biotech, Personally, it's been exciting to me. You know, on the one hand, science is science, no matter where you are. But on the other hand, in biotech, you do have a bit more freedom to pursue novel ideas and novel concepts. And when these ideas bear fruit, you have the ability to shift quickly to concept, to experimentation. We've had some significant breakthroughs in our programs, which have directly resulted from our ability to support and encourage our team members to pursue out-of-the-box ideas. From that standpoint... I see significant opportunities in front of us. And in general, there are comparisons that you can make to big pharma in that we all have the mission of helping humans to overcome disease. What I would sort of layer on top in the biotech world is that the focus is clearly more intense. There's no question about that. And I've, I've picked up on that. It brings a level of excitement that is very refreshing. What, what do you think uh, leads to that greater intensity in, in biotech versus big pharma? I think it really has to do with the fact that, you know, these are obviously smaller organizations. I'll answer that by saying in pharma, you've got quite an army around you that is obviously highly capable and that can really prosecute things in a, a very aggressive way. And I think that is the essence of Big Pharma. They have the resources and the know-how to be able to do this very aggressively. In biotech, every hire is a key hire. And so building the organization is like putting together a unique set of individuals that can work well together and build something that goes from concept to hopefully important new medicines. 
And so what I've seen in the biotech world is that it's very focused on moving things to the point where we can get either go or no-go type answers. We celebrate when someone figures out a way that, you know, perhaps a program going nowhere should be moved to the back burner. That, that's something that we celebrate. Mm-hmm. It's not looked on as, uh, you know, an issue or a problem. The entire organization does, I think, become just more integrated. And um, I think we all feel it. We're all in this together and we're going to succeed together. Yeah, that, that sounds like a testament to the the culture at Foghorn where you are in a safe space where you're able to celebrate failures as long as they're not you know, the same failures over and over again. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to call out Adrian, our, uh, our CEO. He is definitely a people first person and has really emphasized the culture. He's, he's done a real great job in great. that area. Great. So I'm curious, you know, uh, the the other half of your title is also, you know, partner at Flagship Pioneering, yeah. which puts you on a, a different side of the table than you might have been at BMS. So I'm curious, you know, how different is the investing responsibility compared to being the drug developer uh, <laughs> as you have been for the past 30 years? At this point, I'm going to be frank, is that I focused most of my effort in being CSO at Foghorn. That really is number one, and I know that's what Flagship wants me to make number one. The time that I've spent at Flagship has been very rewarding. You know, I've uh, joined the board of a new company, still in stealth mode, uh, being able to bring my past experience to the table in an exciting new field is really rewarding. There's no question about that. I do see the way that Flagship operates is really quite fantastic. They put full support behind their companies and I think have that real pioneering attitude if that that name really does fit. (laughs) So, you know, from that standpoint, I've really loved it. And, you know, quite frankly, meeting a a lot of new people, a lot of smart people that fantastic to interact with. I've very much enjoyed it. Well, you know, I think at least from our experiences, I know Rahul, you speak part of that network as well. It's interesting also how diverse that network is, not only in terms of the traditional aspects of diversity, but also from an age perspective. You have folks who are just out of school who are contributing to the day-to-day activities in terms of spinning up a new company as someone like yourself or Nubar or or, uh, Dave Barry or others, right? Right, right. And so I think it's kind of interesting to see that mix of talent really come together to drive the betterment of human health as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I see that. As you think about the next 30 years of the biotech industry, having worked you know, tirelessly to sort of shape the last 30 years, right? <laughs> and, and although there is probably is some delay, I'm sure the work that you've done most recently is, is going to impact in the future. What I've gleaned from the conversation so far is that your involvement with Foghorn is in part rooted by the opportunity and the green field presented by Crumpton Regulation. So I'm curious, after that sort of biological phenomenon, what are the next one or two trends you see in biotech as a whole yeah. that you think are poised to be the most disruptive? Yeah, well, there's uh, there's certainly the areas that are making sort of marquee-type pronouncements. And I think cell therapy is definitely something that is here to stay. And it, it's sort of incrementally been improved upon to the point where I think these medicines are going to be important. I guess the only issue there is the cost. And is this something that could eventually become, you know, more accessible to individuals? So from that 
standpoint, I'm kind of giving you the base. I think that if you look at the most disruptive technology of the decade, it's clearly uh, CRISPR-Cas9 editing. And I can just look at the impact it's had as a research tool. Fantastic being able to use CRISPR in a way to really get fundamental questions answered in cancer areas, for example, the Achilles data. Mm -hmm. Just think about that. Just wonderful opportunity there to um, really get fantastic information to help guide programs and to understand what types of cancers are important. So in that disease area, it's been a game changer. But the applications in humans are, I think, just beginning. You know, there's companies like Editas and, and others. I do believe that this technology will refine to a point where it could be quite commonplace in the treatment of diseases, as I said earlier, maybe not in 10 years, but probably in the 20-year time frame. That will be, a, I think, a very interesting time for all of humanity. Uh, I, I just hope that CRISPR is used in the appropriate ethical ways as as we make that journey. So at least in the context of, say, cell therapies as an example, you briefly alluded to one of the current challenges as being cost, right? right? You know, I think with uh, medicines like Yescarta and Kimraya sort of being approved, one of the things I've heard sort of back channel is that the cost to manufacture still exceeds the revenue generated from either of those products. How do you start to think about the opportunity versus the quite legit financial cost also, especially if manufacturing is one of those constraints? These are very important things to discuss. I see many of these medicines being applied almost in a like a salvage scenario where there's drugs that have been applied that don't work and these become wonder medicines because, you know, they have uh, shown some pretty exciting efficacy. But what you're really asking, I think, is that how do these fit into the health economics of our, our world where clearly there's a lot of there's a lot of scrutiny on drug pricing and it's a matter of opinion on what you think about that. All I can say from the scientific side is that over the years, several years now, especially when we were really pushing hard with Optivo and Yervoy at BMS, uh, get these drugs out there because they were clearly showing fantastic responses, is that I've interacted with numerous patients, I would say hundreds, and the just outpouring of appreciation for what we do as an industry is, at least for me, at odds with a lot of the stuff that you hear about the pharma industry. And these medicines are making a huge difference. And I think anyone that's working in this industry should be extremely proud of of what they're doing. I don't know of any other industry that you could be in where what you're doing is having such an important impact on how people live and how long they live. And so from that standpoint, we do have to pay attention to pricing, obviously. It's a big part of what we do. But at the same time, I, I do believe that what we're doing is incredibly important, and uh, and we will figure it out. Are there, n- given your experience now at BMS and at Foghorn, right. are there particular drivers that you've identified that you know over the next 10 years you think could, outside of, let's say, manufacturing, that you think could have a significant impact on lowering the price of these new therapies? That's an interesting question. If you think about just the way the entire field operates now, you know, I just picked up a prescription for Pravacol. I take Pravacol and it was, was $5. And I noticed that Herbisartan now is $3. 
So th these are drugs that were at one point priced quite a bit higher than that. But what the industry does deliver is a finite patent cliff that is tough on the pharma industry, yeah. but they essentially deliver to the entire world drugs that work that are in a very low price range. So from the standpoint of new medicines coming on, that's where the uh, difficult part, because obviously there's a significant investment and people want to obviously profit from being able to bring these drugs forward. I think this is all more in the realm of trying to make sure that we can get these medicines to people in a way that is good for everyone. That to me is the trick that we need to pull off. On a slightly different vector, one of the topics that we've heard other guests opine about in terms of this future of biotech is one world that is driven heavily by computation. We've seen in other industries that are also data intensive, an example being financial services, a lot of artificial intelligence, machine learning, computation change dramatically how that industry operates. Given your exposure to perhaps similar technologies and trends, both at BMS and obviously at Foghorn and potentially the larger flagship portfolio, how are you seeing computation and let's say ML, not even AI, ML, contribute to the selection of the advancement of compounds from discovery into the clinic? I'm not sure that's the place where it's been most effective. I, I've seen machine learning definitely being applied in the clinical space in a way that mm -hmm. I think is changing the way clinical trials are being done and interpreted. There are companies in the uh, discovery phase that are using some really exciting <laughs> artificial intelligence paradigms and one of them I'm aware of that I, I'm not going to talk about, but I, I saw s some very exciting information that has basically been pulled together through taking advantage of all of the biological, chemical, biomedical information that's out there and using that to help guide selection of not just disease areas, but selection of molecules that could potentially work in those disease areas. So I am a very big believer. You sort of alluded to it a little bit is that it's a little bit stage dependent. The way it's used or the type of value that you're going to get is going to be dependent whether you're looking at research or maybe clinical trial selection, right. et cetera. Where do you think lowest hanging fruit is in the, in the full pipeline? I think it's probably in the clinic because you have patients, you have a set of parameters, you put it together and... You make the trials more efficient, better design. I think a lot of what really makes or breaks clinical trials these days is patient selection. Mm -hmm. There's no question about it. And in that context, I've observed that whether it's a bigger pharma company, you know, for example, they can talk all they want about AI and machine learning and how they're data-driven, but there's still a cultural component, right? Right. And also a component of even how you do the science to make sure you have not only great, robust, trusted data, but also really good, trusted metadata, as an example, right? Yes. How have you guys been thinking about that cultural aspect of like being data-driven at Foghorn since you're able to build it sort of more or less from the ground up? Being able to access uh, data, not just data internally, but data sort of worldwide is, is uh, very important. At, at Foghorn, we have been building a platform, essentially building a lot of new information We've used that information in a way to convert ideas now into tangible programs. So from the standpoint of new ideas, new data being produced, we're basically industrializing it. I do think that 
when you get to the point where these programs are progressing to the clinic, it's really important if you're in for the long haul to be able to get that information in a type of environment that can be accessible and be useful for future projects. For our younger listeners ah. and, and those folks that are either an undergrad or grad school finishing up postdocs, I'm sure they'd love to hear your viewpoint on why should they come join a biotech company and what they should be prepared for. <laughs> Good one. Good one. <laughs> I feel, like, um, I feel like a lot of folks, even in big pharma, who want to go to biotech yeah, would benefit from that answer, too. <laughs> yeah, it's hard work. Like, there's no question about it. You're in a, uh, an environment where you want to take full advantage of your time at work. You want to be pushing on the best programs. You want to make sure that you're not going to make any missteps. So there's a lot of focus and intensity. And like there's people that thrive in that environment and there's others that don't. And the people that thrive in it, I think the the entire team at Foghorn does thrive in it, really do get excited about the science and seeing it reduced to practice. And so from that standpoint, I think you have to be, there's got to be an element of adventure that you're excited about. You can't go into a biotech and expect to sit and then go home and come back and go home. You know, this is something where, quite honestly, it, it stays in your brain all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that's the way I think great discoveries are made. It's from people that are very focused and really do think about things that can change how a particular way of doing things can turn into something that is even better than the way you're doing that thing. And so... From that standpoint, adventure is really the good way to think about it. It's an adventure. Be excited about it. Realize that there's going to be times, and there are many times, when things don't succeed. I say the same thing every time. Chin up, okay? Keep your chin up. (laughs) And the other point I would make is it really is, and it can be, a, a roller coaster. I think the people that really do well find a way to keep things on an even keel and adjust when appropriate. It's very rare that that a problem doesn't have a solution with that many smart people around. So that's the way I think about it. Well, you know, I think that's a a great closing thought and remark that's hopefully motivating for all those who are listening today that even the most experienced folks, right, (laughs) face adversity from time to time, but keeping their chin up, as Carl pointed out, is sort of the right attitude to have. So with that, Carl, we'd love to thank you for joining us on the podcast today and look forward to hopefully having you and your team on again some point in the future, especially as uh, Foghorn goes public and cures cancer. How's that sound? <laughs> thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Carl. Wonderful. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. It's produced by Gene Merlane, edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.